Well, thank you. It's great to finally get a chance to get up here and open God's Word with you. Um, really enjoyed being in not only this church, but this group too, and getting to know a lot of you here. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so you can go ahead and open up there. Um, been asked to speak on the topic of contextualization. Contextualization. And, you know, I want to do several things today. First of all, talk about what contextualization is and talk about how those principles apply to missions today, how they're being applied, really, in a lot of cases, wrongly. Um, what, and then we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about contextualization, specifically here in, in 1 Corinthians 9. And uh, then we're going to look at how Paul applied the principles of contextualization in his ministry. And then finally, uh, we'll ask ourselves, how should we be applying those same principles as witnesses to the gospel? So, 1 Corinthians 9, let's open up our Bibles to that. And the, the core of what we're going to be talking about is found in, in verse 22, 1 Corinthians 9, 22, where Paul says uh, in the second part of the verse, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> there's a lot of alls in there. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, and there's a lot of talk about that in mission circles today. Um, how do you make the gospel relevant? How, how, do you, how do you change and adapt yourself and the, and the gospel to new contexts so that people will come to Christ? So that's what contextualization is, adapting or adjusting or accommodating both yourself and the gospel to a, a different culture, a different context, so that the gospel can be understood and accepted and people come to Christ. And just notice, you know, the contextualization applies to both the messenger and the message. So there's two kind of aspects of contextualization. And, you know, like... like uh, Drew reminded us, there's someone in our group who's practicing contextualization right now in an evening service in Romania. Tim Brown's over there. Now, do you think Tim Brown's over there talking about squirrel hunting today? Uh, <laughs> I hope not, because gun, gun uh, ownership in, in Romania and all the former Soviet Union is very highly regulated. And a lot of people know what a squirrel is, but they would never think of shooting them. Okay? That's just not something they would think of. Now, fishing, that would work. You could talk about fishing, people are fishermen there, but not, not, not shooting uh, anything. And, and especially in the context of the church. Again, this is important to notice. In the context of the society, they wouldn't really relate to shooting squirrels. In the context of the church, the church is pacifist over there. What does that mean? They don't believe in even touching a gun, even holding a gun, much less shooting it at a squirrel or anyone else. You know, they don't believe in killing people. So to, to use that kind of a, an illustration would be offensive actually in the church. So Tim Brown, I'm sure, knows that and is, is being very careful about that. Now, do you think he's over there talking about the Georgia Bulldogs football team today? You know? Well, there's not much to talk about about Georgia Bulldog football nowadays, that's for sure. But, I'm just, <laughs> but other than that, people wouldn't understand one thing about that. It wouldn't, so he's not talking about that. So Tim has adapted himself and what he's saying to the context he's in. And that's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When you teach the gospel to another culture, you have to adapt yourself and the message to, to that culture. And Paul was a master of doing this. Now, Jill and I, as, as Drew mentioned, we were privileged to serve the Lord for 10 years in Russia. So our kids, one of them who's here, Zach, grew up in Russia, speaks Russian fluently. And um, when we arrived in Russia... We hadn't really gone through a lot of language learning beforehand. We didn't even know the alphabet when we landed there. So we get there, and all of a sudden, contextualization became very real to us. <laughs> we understood we are not in L.A., you know, where we took off from to go there. Uh, no, we are, we are in a whole new place. The first thing that's blatantly obvious is people here don't speak English. <laughs> they speak Russian. If I'm going to communicate the gospel or anything to them, I got to learn Russian. And that took us really every day that we were there. We spent learning Russian. We never stopped learning Russian. You can never, you know, get, never stop getting better in Russian. Once you learn the, the language, just how to communicate and how to preach and teach, you still have to learn what, what's in people's hearts and what makes them tick, the idioms and, and uh, things that, that, that you can really reach into their heart with. And you just keep learning the whole time. So just, just remember that about missionaries. They, they, you never 
learn a language. You always are learning it. You better be, or else you're, stu- you're stuck at a certain plateau, and you never really improve and get better. But Paul talks about that, and we'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 9, too, the effort it takes to, to uh, work at contextualization. But we, anyway, we saw that you know, people, another thing, other things that people, we, we saw about in, in the, just the Russian society in general, people were very quiet there in Russia. Now, I don't know how many of you have traveled to any of the former Soviet countries or whatever, but people there don't make a lot of noise out in public. Now, there's a reason for that, because in the past, if you did make noise uh, and, and speak openly, uh, there were spies everywhere, and you could be reported and hauled off to prison you know, and never seen again, literally, for saying one little thing that was heard. So there's a context to that, but people still to this day, just they, they whisper, kind of, they're very quiet in public. So you got to adapt to that. You know, you don't want to go out there and make a scene every time you step out onto the street. The clothing that people wear, dark clothing. Everyone wears dark clothing there. So we noticed that, and unfortunately, I had bought this brand new Eddie Bauer light blue kind of ski jacket to be warm over there. Now, it, believe me, it starts snowing in September there and snows until May. So you need, you need jackets to stay warm. But uh, it, it got, you know, it, it got cold. So in L.A., we never needed any jackets like that. But I, so I bought myself a brand new light blue ski jacket. And I realized as soon as I got off the plane, I can't wear this here. I'll stick out like a sore thumb in a bright, colorful jacket. So I bought a dark one, dark leather jacket, and that's what I wore. Another thing that is interesting we noticed after a while, people would never have that window open and that door open in this room in Russia. I don't care how hot it was in here, if the air conditioner broke, they would never have to, because that allows a breeze to blow through the room, and they believe a breeze blowing through a room gets you sick. And so if you're in church, you know, this is how you have to apply these principles. If you're in a, a church and you decide you're too hot, so before you get up to preach, you're going to you know, have open this thing up so we can get some air in here, well, people aren't going to listen to you because they're going to be sitting there worried the whole time that they're going to get sick because the wind's blowing through. So you've got to be aware of those things and, and leave the door shut. You can open the window, but you can't open something opposite it so that the breeze would come through. So those are ways, you know, you have to contextualize even the room, you know, and even the way you think about, you know, sweating or whatever. Uh, but those are things you have to pay attention to or you're going to prevent people from hearing and understanding the gospel. Now, again, those are, those are things kind of just general Russian culture, but when you get to Russian church culture, there were other things we noticed. For example, women and men sit on different sides of the room. So, you know, if you came in with your family saying, well, we're going to sit together as a family, doggone it. <laughs> nope. <laughs> if you do that, then you're going to, you're, you're, everyone's going to be wondering, why is this guy in sin? You know, why, why is he, either he's sitting on the women's side or why is his wife sitting on the men's side with him? No, you can't do that. You had to separate. So we learned that really quickly. Never could sit together in church. And then, you know, everyone in church, the men at least, wore suit and tie, so had to wear suit and tie every time to church. No problem. Um, the women wore dresses, of course, no pants or anything like that. And the women all wore a head covering. It's the only thing, first thing you know as you go to church. Every woman who's married has a, has a head covering. Now, you know, so we realize we've got to put the head covering on. Now, is that wrong? What do you think about that? Is that wrong to put on a head covering just because... You're in a culture when you know that, you know, you know you believe that Paul's teaching on head covering right here in 1 Corinthians is not normative today. It was, a, it was a cultural application of a principle that's true, that a woman should not usurp the authority of a man. You know, we all believe that, but we don't, you know, we don't wear head coverings. But is it right then? Is it, is it, is it fake or, or not genuine to put on a head covering um, when you're in Russia and, and take it off as soon as you get on the plane? Uh, no. No, and we'll see this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but Paul's addressing there the, the issue of, eat, of food, of meat, offered to idols, and whether or not that should be eaten. And Paul's principle there is, you know, I'm not changing my convictions when I don't eat meat in order to not cause a, a weaker brother to, to stumble when I don't, you know, if, I were, if he were to know that I was eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Um, I just, I'm changing my behavior, not my convictions. And I'm doing that because I don't want to cause my brother to go against his conscience. I don't want to offend that weaker brother. That would be sinful or wrong. So there's uh, just an example there of of this contextualization in the context of the church here. And, you know, when you teach or preach there, you know, you take a sermon, you can't preach it the same way that you'd preach it here. 
You know, you have to change it up, particularly the illustrations. Be careful not to offend people or, you know, um, say things that are foreign to them, you know, that they, they can't relate to at all. Um, that, that distracts them if, you, if you're not careful with that. Instead of helping to illustrate the principle, you're distracting them from really understanding what you're saying. Now, that's the context of the Russian world that, that we were privileged to live in for 10 years. But now let's take that a step further into the Muslim world. And this is where contextualization has gone much further and much crazier. Um, we have a friend um, who's a missionary in Central Africa in a very Muslim village context out past the end of the road kind of place. Um, and when he goes there to minister, he grows a beard, he wraps his head in a towel, and he wears a tunic, just like everyone, every other man there. Gets on the plane, comes back here, takes all that off, you know, and, and his beard too. Uh, and when he's there, he does what all the men do, sit under the tree all day and talk. And the women do all the work, but the men sit under the tree, so that's what he does. And he's, he's sitting there all day long for years, you know, learning their language and trying to find a way into their conversations, into their discussions, uh, to share the gospel with them. And, you know, that's, he shared with us how discouraging that was. He, he, he just didn't see how, how was he going to be able to do that, you know. How do you contextualize the gospel message? How do you even start witnessing the gospel to people who will never accept that Jesus is the Son of God? Never. As soon as you say that, done. They'll not talk to you again. Well, this is very difficult. And, and I knew of people from the country of Georgia, which is right next to Iran, the, 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 the Christians in Georgia would send missionaries into Iran to preach the gospel. And as you know, Iran is <laughs> probably one of the most Muslim places in the world. And those guys' heads would end up uh, on sticks in the marketplace in Iran for a couple weeks after they got there. You know, that's, that's how they were received as being you know, evangelists in Iran. So it's, it's difficult. Reaching you know, Muslims and Hindus, for example, you know, has, is a very difficult proposition. And it's unfortunately caused a lot of missions gurus and, and missions thinkers to stray away from the pure gospel. And so instead of preaching you know, the gospel that, that Paul summarizes so clearly in, in 1 Corinthians 15, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it, but you know, that Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You know, instead of preaching that gospel, they've simplified the gospel to say that, you know, Jesus is a messenger or a, a prophet of God. Jill, do you have a, a Kleenex or something? My nose is uh, really running right now for some reason. Oh, there's some right here. Oh, there's some right here. Okay. Sorry about that. I've had a cold for the last couple of weeks. And... But um, what they've changed the gospel to from the pure gospel is that Jesus is just a, a prophet or a messenger of God and that, that he spoke a message that can help us to be better followers of Allah. That's what they boil it down to. And what they call this, this contextualizational and steroids, completely wrong, is the insider movement. How, how many of you have ever heard of the insider movement? Okay, there's a couple of you in here. That's interesting. Um, because that, this, this, these concepts I'm going to share with you have infested almost all Christian mission organizations that we know of today. And almost all of them would agree that this is the right way to witness to Muslims in their context, you know, in, in, in their cultures in the world. You know, they would start off with, you know, they're thinking that the Muslims have a strong Islamic identity. So we can't really do a whole lot to get them to change from being Muslims to being some other religion, like Christian. So what they come up with is something they call incarnational communication. We have to communicate the gospel differently, they would say. And we have to contextualize that. And it's, it's deceivingly appealing to people, especially when you look at the way that my friend that I described is trying to witness, you know, with hardly any fruit, very difficult to even start talking about Jesus. You know, so how do you, how do you get some results? And it's appealing. They talk about these uh, people in the insider movement, how you start off by seeking a common ground with, with the Muslims and you use their, use their language and their terms. For example, Allah's God, we only have to fight that one. They already believe in God. Um, it's not the true God, obviously, nor the God of the Bible. But they would say, no, they already believe in God. 
And then uh, they have a prophet named Isa that they believe in. You just teach them, Isa is really Jesus, and that's, that's, you already believe in him. So if you believe in Isa, that's Jesus, and, and you're already most of the way there. And then they, they take another step, and they would say, let's use the Quran as a, as a bridge to get these people to start thinking about Jesus rightly. Tell some stories from the Bible chronologically. Just tell your Bible stories, Sunday school Bible stories. And then particularly, this rises out of context where they're addressing felt needs, mercy ministry, where you're helping people who have been refugees or have been displaced or are poor. Um, a lot of this comes out of that kind of context in, in witnessing to, to uh, Muslims. Um, and, and they just simplify the message of the gospel to what they would call the message of the kingdom. There's room for everyone in the kingdom. So that's just, you don't have to be a Christian to, to be a follower of Christ. And they would tell stories like this, that there are dozens of sheikhs they've heard somewhere that came together and embraced Christ. Not the Christian religion, but they embraced Christ, they would say. And this has opened doors to the, the uh, gospel in their villages, these sheikhs. And as a result of that, there are communities of the kingdom all over the place and transform lives. And, and especially in the communities, again, where there's effects of war or, you know, or poverty. We see this change, you know, this change is happening in a good way. And people in missions hear about that stuff. They get excited. And they want to see results like that too. And they end up embracing this insider movement. And the end result is that supposed disciples of Jesus can remain as Muslims, can stay in the mosque. Now, I'm telling you, this, is, this might sound like, what in the world is this guy talking about? This is what's being taught. In, to most new missionaries going to the Muslim world nowadays. I'm talking about evangelical missionaries. And so what, what are the core things that make this unbiblical and wrong, the insider movement? Well, there's five things you have to hold to if you're going to believe and follow the insider movement. First of it, not just that Jesus is a prophet, but you have to accept Muhammad as being a prophet. Even though he himself, Muhammad himself, said um, that he received his original visions in a cave when he got those, he thought he was getting visions from Satan. And it was one of his wives, who was actually a Catholic, who convinced him that that wasn't Satan, that was God who gave him those visions, after he even tried to commit suicide, because he was so upset by having had these satanic, demonic visions. So you have to accept Muhammad as the prophet. And the first pillar of Islam is what? That, that you have to be able to recite and say, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So to accept the insider movement, you have to accept that statement right there, the first pillar of Islam. Well, that's obviously completely wrong, biblically. Next, they would say that you don't need to deny your Muslim identity within your society. It's okay to, to still carry on as a, as a full card-carrying member of the Muslim religion. You can do that. That's fine. Well, that's, that's not right. You know, why did Christ come to, to build his church? Um, not so they could all stay as Muslims. Next, they would say that the Quran needs to be viewed as Scripture. And really, in the end, they replace the Bible with the Quran. You, you start down that slippery soap by, by, again, as I mentioned, Jesus is a messenger of God, and you accept that, and, and in the Quran actually accepts that, that Jesus is a messenger of God. So because he's a messenger of God, you can accept his message, you know, kind of, the Bible, sort of. So... If Jesus' message is okay, then, then why not try to find a, a Jesus' message in the Quran? And they do. That's what they'll do. Take the Quran and, and they'll use the Quran extensively for quote unquote evangelism and discipleship. Are you saying that, I'm sorry, are you saying that there's a mission uh, organizations that this is what they're teaching the people when they go in? I'm saying if you go to an evangelical missions conference today, anywhere in North America or anywhere in the world, Evangelical, evangelical. Okay, I'm, no, I'm not talking about some craziness here. I'm talking about evangelical missions conference. They will be teaching this, and, and this is the only way to do it. I'm telling you. And if you got up and said something against that, they'd shoot you down. This is what's being followed. If you're, yeah, if you're, not, if you're supporting missionaries <laughs> that are in the Muslim world and you don't know what they're doing, they're doing this. Okay, this is what everyone is doing nowadays. Yeah, I'm in shock too. And I'm not, this isn't new. This is from 20 years ago. So it's, it's just infected everything. Um, yeah, I, I'm in shock too. So anyway, so replace the Quran, replace the Bible with the Quran. And then, of course, what's the next step? Now we've got to change some words in the Bible to make it acceptable. 
uh, you know, Son of God, we got to get rid of that. They will never accept it, that Jesus was the Son of God. So we got to, you know, some of these difficult terms in the Bible, we need to use the, the language of the Muslims and use their religious vocabulary. And in the end, um, we have to have a new Jesus hermeneutic to use the Quran. So that's where they land. And then finally, one more, the fifth tenet that needs to be accepted if you're going to follow the insider movement is you have to redefine churches into communities of Christ followers. And these can be found anywhere, uh, inside a Muslim community or inside a Hindu or Sikh community. Uh, we can find, you know, in theory, uh, followers of Christ, little communities of followers of Christ. And since Christ's body is, it consists of both visible and invisible churches, they would say, this, an invisible church can basically develop anywhere as long as they have some kind of Christ identity. They can be located right inside of a Muslim, Hindu, or some other kind of uh, society. And so you can be a Christian and not leave your, your religion that you, that you should be coming out of. So the result of that is it's syncretism, just a com- com- combining of different religions. And you, know, you end up with something that's fruitless, and harmful and even dangerous. And like I said, it's especially dangerous because this is what's being taught in missions classes and seminaries all around our country today, that this is the right way to minister to Muslims. You know, this is contextualization really gone way too far. So let's, let's open up our Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 9, and let's see what, you know, what, what does Paul say about contextualization. We're going to start at verse 19 and just read that second last paragraph of the of this chapter. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So we're dropping here into the middle of the letter that Paul wrote, the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So I'm kind of big on the context of where we're coming here, and especially when you read the first thing we read there is, for I am free from all. What in the world is he talking about there? What free, what free from what? Well, let's talk about that just a second so we understand what he's building on to make his point here in this, in this paragraph that we're reading. Well, Paul writes the letter to the first Corinthians because they wrote him with some questions, and then he had also heard some things about them that were very disturbing. So that, that's the purpose of the letter, is to answer things he had heard and things they had asked. And we, we drop here into him answering one of the things they asked, which is, what do we do about this food offered to idols? How do we deal with that in our lives and in, uh, in, our, in our church? And that was a very complicated issue. Now, some of us might think, food to idols, what's the problem? You know, it's meat, just eat it, right? What's the problem? Well, it was a problem, and it was a very complicated problem. Because most of the meat sold in the town in Corinth came from sacrificial animals. And most of those animals had been offered as a sacrifice at pagan ceremonies. So the, the Corinthians were asking questions like this. Do these pagan rituals, where this meat came out of, came from, basically they would cut the, the good parts of the, of the animal out of the animal before they would burn it and, and offer it for sacrifice and then sell that meat. Does that, the fact that that meat came out of a, a, a pagan temple and ritual, does that taint the food? That's the first question they'd have. Next of all, Okay, that food now is in the market being sold, that meat. Should Christians buy that food? Can we? Next thing, what if you're invited over to someone's home and they offer you a meal? Unbeliever or even believer maybe. Is it okay to eat that meat at someone else's home? What about at various uh, different social events like weddings or parties or, or other things like that that would happen on the grounds of the temple? Uh, is it okay to be invited to someone's wedding and eat the meat that has been offered to idols, should, should we even participate in that? Or should we not? If we do participate, should we eat or not? 
And then finally, what about you know in in overtly religious events that happen at the at the temple? Should we participate in those and eat there? So these are the kind of questions they were asking. You know, you can see it's kind of a complicated issue. Not not as simple as it might seem at first glance. So Paul offers them, and we're not going to read through all of all of, all of uh, chapters eight, nine, and ten to see these. But Paul basically answers with three answers to their questions. First of all, you've got freedom. You've got freedom to eat where there's nothing going on that's anti-Christian. No anti-Christian implications. You can eat. But if there are other Christians in that context that might be damaged by your freedom to eat that meat, then you abstain. You voluntarily abstain from eating that meat. And then thirdly, you you should never eat meat at some overtly pagan festival or ritual or something going on in the temple because you shouldn't even be there at that time. So he, he answers all their questions that way about their freedom to eat this meat. So the, so the principle there is there's, you know, there's freedom to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, but that freedom gives way to the love for your brother so that you don't cause him to stumble because of your freedom. So that's chapter 8. Now, moving into chapter 9, Paul makes another point about freedom and abstention, but with a different issue. And that's right, he, he deals with that right before we get into our section here. We won't read all that. But he talks here about how to deal with accepting money for his ministry. Now, those might seem, what in the world does meat offer idols do have to do with him being paid for, for you know, preaching the gospel in Corinth? Well, Paul says he doesn't use that freedom because he loves him, basically. And he makes it clear that he has a right, just as all ministers of the gospel do, to uh, accept money from those who they're ministering to. He makes it very clear in the beginnings parts of chapter 9. But because Paul wants to avoid all possible charges of any kind of impure motives or misuse of funds, he abstains from accepting money from the church where he is ministering. Now, and this is true actually throughout the whole New Testament. He doesn't take money from where he's at. Now, he will take money when he's here from another church he ministered to before and they want to send it to him. He'll take that money. But he won't take the money from the people he's ministering to right there. Instead, he works, works hard as a tent maker. And, you know, this is also in a context of Paul's apostleship being questioned because of his giving up freedoms like this because of his desire to stay as far away from any kind of impure motives or things that could be, you know, he could be accused of misuse of funds. He wants to stay as far away from that. People question his, his uh, apostleship, whether he was a true apostle. And if you wonder about that, read the whole book of first, uh, 2 Corinthians. That's, that's a whole book is a defense of his apostleship. So he's trying to do everything he can to avoid allowing anyone to use money to wrongly influence his ministry. That's why he says no to taking money, even though he's free to do that for his ministry. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he, he's, there's this one verse, I'll just read it to you. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. In those days, there were so many guys going around cashing in on preaching God's word from church to church, place to place. Now, Paul had the freedom to do that. He had the freedom to accept the ministry of, of money for his ministry. But instead of taking money for his ministry, he abstains from that right in order to maintain the highest level of integrity that he possibly could. So now let's move into our passage. And we see now, for though I am free from all, he says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. That's verse 19 of chapter 9. So Paul's main principle in life here is not to exercise his freedom from the gospel. I'm free from all. But instead... His main principle is to give up those freedoms in order to win more people to Christ and save them from their sins. So whatever Paul does, he chooses to do what removes unnecessary obstacles that might prevent people from coming to Christ, especially in the gray areas of life, especially in those areas, areas that don't deal with fundamental morality or immorality, areas like what we just talked about, Food sacrificed to idols and accepting money for ministry. Paul chooses to remove any kind of obstacle that might result from those so that more people will accept Christ. And those don't become stumbling blocks or ways that prevent people 
from accepting the truth of the gospel. So Paul believes in contextualization. And he's going to do or not do, whatever the situation might be, anything that might prevent people from hearing or understanding or believing the gospel. So for Paul, the main principle is what he says here, that I might win more of them. The main principle for him is winning souls to Christ. And he repeats that in every verse. Look at this, just in our paragraph that we read through. Verse 20 says, um, win more of them. Verse, uh, that was 19. Verse 20, he says, win Jews. Again in 20, win those under the law. Uh, verse 21, win those outside the law. And verse 22, save some. He, you know, this just is infects this whole passage here. Paul is obsessed with winning people to Christ. So how does he go about doing that? Let's look at verse 20. He says, to the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. How did Paul do that? How did Paul become like a Jew in order to win Jews? Yeah, he used the scripture, all right. But I'm talking about a contextualization. How did he have to change himself and adapt himself and his ministry to become more Jewish to, so that it, there wouldn't be an obstacle to him to them accepting his gospel message? A good example of this is we, we've already read about is in Acts 16 when Paul himself circumcised Timothy. Remember, he went to Lystra to, to pick up Timothy, and he circumcised him. Now, why in the world would Paul fall back into the law and do that? No, he does that so that Timothy would not be an obstacle to the gospel. He, he, what's, what's the first place he lands in every place he goes to preach the gospel? The synagogue, right? If he's got Timothy along with him and you know, he's not uh, circumcised, they all knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Um, they would, you know, that, that would prevent Paul from having opportunities to, to preach to the first people he went to preach in in every town. So Paul circumcised him. Not as a, a way to, to be more righteous, not as a way to you know, work salvation, you know, be, a, be a better Christian or something. No, but just to pre- a way to prevent Jews from not listening to the gospel. So that's one, you know, a, a very vivid way that to the Jews, Paul became a Jew in order to win Jews. Verse 20, second part says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, not being myself under the law, then I might win those under the law. Now when Paul talks here about those under the law, what's the difference between a Jew and those under the law? Well, none for a Jew. It's, it's the same, same person, same people that are under the law. The Jews are under the law. But here he's referring to, to also Gentile converts to Judaism. He adds them in to this. So not only does he adapt himself to Jews, but he adapt himself to, to Gentile converts who, who have embraced Judaism. Now, an example of, of this, and again, this applies to both the Jews and, and the, the Gentile converts to Judaism. How did Paul put this into practice? How did he become as one under the law? Do you remember? Well, not remember. We're going to get there. Acts 21, we'll get there in a few weeks. I'll tell you what, you start reading that, this part of, you know, the end of... Uh, of uh, the third missionary journey when he comes back to Jerusalem, you can't stop reading. I, I'm going to be interested in how you're going to deal with that. I mean, you just you just want to keep going, you know? like for the till the end of the of the book almost because it's just it just keeps rolling. You know, it's so interesting. Um, but uh, Acts 21, Paul's asked. He, he comes back from his third missionary journey, and he's uh, he comes back uh, to to the church there in, in to James in the church in in Jerusalem, and he's asked by the church leaders in Jerusalem to do a few things. They ask him to take a Nazarite vow with four other Jewish believers, uh, four other men, which would require them all to shave their heads, to go through seven days of ritual purification, and then they ask Paul on top of that, go through all that, all this stuff that seems like you're kind of coming back under the law, on top of that, to pay for all of them, and, and the, the sacrifices, very costly sacrifices that all five of them would end up having to, to make in the process of going through this purification, they asked him to pay for that. And they tell him, you know, by, by doing this, you're going to show other Jewish believers who were against Paul in Jerusalem because they had heard some things, wrong things, about him out and about and as he was going around in his missionary journeys. Uh, there, by doing this, he would show the Jewish believers that he did live in observance of the law, that he hadn't flushed the whole law. Now, why in the world would Paul agree to do something like this? <laughs> why? Doesn't this seem like taking contextualization too far? Shave your head and, 
and then uh, go through this purification and, and then really pay a bribe to get right with the church in Jerusalem? Um, yeah, that, doesn't that seem like that's taken too far? Well, no, it's not. Because obviously Paul was not, by doing this, was not denying Christ's final sacrifice on the cross. He knew he wasn't doing that. He had written books of the Bible about that. So he was not doing that. But he must have viewed this whole thing as something that was culturally Jewish. Um, not unlike our Muslim friend who grows a beard, wraps his head in a towel, wears a tunic, just so he can be, you know, not be an obstacle to the truth of the gospel. He viewed it as something cultural. Um, and he obviously didn't view it as something uh, that he had to do under the law for his forgiveness of sins and offer those sacrifices. But he did this to win those under the law, as he says in, in our verse, that I might win those under the law. And this was fine. This was fine to do as long as it was clear that his actions weren't proof of any kind of, of salvation or sanctification, you know, spiritual maturity in any way. That was fine for Paul to do. That's what I did. So now moving to verse 21, he talks about another group of people. He says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now who is outside the law? Obviously Gentiles, right? Gentile, Gentile unbelievers. Paul, what he's saying here is he did not require Gentiles to follow Jewish rituals to be saved. Now, that's one extreme. He didn't require them to follow the Jewish law. But on the other extreme, he didn't flush the whole law either. He didn't chuck the whole thing. He was not antinomian. You're basically saying, now that Christ has come, there aren't any laws we need to follow. We're all free. No, he wasn't that either. He taught them to follow God's timeless moral principles that Jesus himself made clear. You know, Paul refers him here that he's under the law of Christ. And Paul summed up that law of Christ in, in Galatians 6. I'll just read you this verse. He says, bear, another's, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's in a nutshell. Uh, the law of Christ to Paul. So, moving on to verse 22, he, he, he has one more final group of people that he's trying to win. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now here, this group of people is a lot is different than the Jews, the ones under the law, the ones outside the law. Because those were all unbelievers. People who didn't believe in Christ. These people here, he's referring to were believers with weak consciences. Um, believers who had mildly legalistic convictions that they were falling under. And people like those he already described right earlier who thought that eating meat sacrificed to idols was wrong. Um, he's, he says, to, to those weak people, I become weak. I won't eat the meat in order that I might win them. And, and win them, he doesn't mean win them as far as salvation. They're already saved. They are, they're already believing in Christ. But he's, he's talking about winning them to a more mature faith, a more mature belief. He's talking about sanctification, not salvation here. So Paul's love for going overboard on, on witnessing and, and seeing people saved includes also seeing people sanctified. And he summarizes all this in, in the, the second part of verse 22. Look there, he says, again, this is the verse we already read, but and kind of the core of what we're talking about here. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And this is really kind of a restatement of what he started with in verse 19, where he said, I have made myself a servant to all, then I might win more of them. So this is, this is the core of what he's trying to communicate to us here in this passage. But, but a question did Paul become all things to all men the moment he was saved? No, right? He didn't, he didn't become that in an instant. And here's another interesting question. Was he ever at one point in time all things to all men? Like when he had his head shaved in the temple in Jerusalem going through the ritual purification with those other four guys. Was he all things to all men there? Like all men everywhere in the world to the Greeks? And No. He, he was... 
all things to the Jewish men and the Jewish believers at that moment. So Paul understood that contextualization um, is something that that doesn't happen once and doesn't just it doesn't just happen and now you're contextualized. No, it it changes, it changes, and you have to be sensitive to the context you're in to adapt your 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 yourself and the way you communicate God's truth to fit the audience that you're speaking to. And he was careful to do that in every culture and context that he found himself in. And then he tells us in verse 23 why he did all this. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So that final word, blessings, right there, uh, is a, is a, touches on a, a common thread throughout this section of, of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks a lot about blessings and rewards. Um, he, 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 he refers to that often. You know, he's, he doesn't get the blessing or the reward of money for ministry. What is his reward? Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, a little, uh, another passage in 1 Corinthians 3. You don't need to turn there. 1 Corinthians 3.11. What reward does, does Paul get for his, his freedoms, for giving up his freedoms and his rights? Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if one builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, Paul says, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You remember that passage in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul understood that the blessing that he would receive for the hard work of becoming all things to all men, that that blessing involves seeing people come to Christ. That was part of the blessing. But he also understood that there was going to be an eternal blessing, a reaping of the reward in heaven, from Christ, for how focused he was on reaching the lost with the gospel. And he says, you know, the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He understood that. And that's why Paul was fully committed to contextualization, to becoming all things to all men for the sake of winning souls to Christ. So to wrap this up, let's read the last paragraph of this chapter. And it's the next, uh, what, three, four verses. Here we're going to see Paul illustrate how much effort it takes to practice contextualization, to, to be all things to all men. And he compares that effort that he puts into this to the effort that an athlete puts in to preparing for competition. Now, this is, this is an amazing example of contextualization right here, just, just this paragraph in, in this letter. See, the... the Corinthians had their own version of the Olympic Games. It, the, their games weren't every four years, they were every two years. The year after the Olympic Games and the year before the Olympic Games. They had their own games. So uh, athletic little illustrations like this were very familiar. We're twice as familiar as those where, where the Olympic Games were. Um, so, so Paul, again, in his illustration here, he's not adapting, he's not changing the truth of the gospel, but he applies it in a way that is, is vivid and understandable to them. So let's, let's read uh, those last few verses of the chapter here, beginning in, in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What a vivid illustration for the people there in Corinth of Paul showing why he was intensely focused on seeing people saved on this earth and intensely focused on what he knew he was 
here on earth to do. He's, he's a great example to us, Paul is here, of the intense commitment to not just sharing the gospel where it was easy for him, but he shows us how hard he worked to communicate the gospel to different cultures and classes of people. Remember in Athens and Mars Hill, you know, Paul strolls into Athens and he shares the gospel in, in several different contexts. Do you remember how he reasoned with people in the synagogue? He reasoned with people in the marketplace, anyone who would come. Now, do you think he reasoned in the same way in the synagogue and in the marketplace, you know, with Jews and with Gentiles? No, no, he, he would change his message. And that took work, that took effort, he, he's telling us here. But then when he gets up to, to Mars, on Mars Hill, he's speaking to the Areopagus, you know, the leaders of the leaders there. And he didn't just stroll in there and wander in there to... Uh, to, you know, to, to say something. No, he studied their culture. Do you remember he walked through the city and he, he, he obviously knew Greek, he knew their language, and he had studied their customs. And before speaking to them, he took all that into consideration. And when we, do, when, he, when we do see him speak, what he said, we see the hard work he put into that gospel message so that they would listen to him and understand what he was saying and respond to the gospel. You know, some of the things he did, he spoke to them in Greek. Like I said, he didn't, he didn't get up and speak in Aramaic or Hebrew. Um, interesting how many languages Paul knew. You know, he went to Rome. He probably knew Latin on top of that. And then, if he did make it to Spain, and we're going to find out whether he did or not <laughs> at some point, but if he did make it to Spain, um, he would have had to learn Spanish, you know, probably. So this guy, you know, he, he didn't just uh, keep the languages of his youth or whatever. He, he worked hard at, at other languages so he could proclaim the gospel. And when he gets up, do you remember when he gets up at Mars Hill? How does he start off? He gets up and says, men of Athens. He doesn't get up and say, you sinners are going to die and go to hell if you don't repent. No, he doesn't say that. He's the men of Athens. He, he greets them with respect. He knows how to get into their heart. He quotes their poets. He, he talks about their altars that he's seen and the idols he's seen. He took time to notice that and he brings that all into his, his speech. And he frames his message using very tight Greek rhetorical structure. Hard for us to see that, especially in the translation that, that we have. But you know, he he that is that is a masterful use of rhetoric, the same way those guys used it all day long in the Areopagus. And he did that all in a three-minute speech. Three minutes. What a master of, of contextualization. So he carefully constructed that speech so that it would be acceptable and understandable, and so that it didn't sound like, remember they accused him, you know, we, we heard you're, you're babbling, you're a babbler or something. No, he constructed it so that it, it wouldn't be nonsense. It wouldn't sound like babble to them. And what was the result of that, do you remember? One guy from the Areopagus believed, and another woman did, and they said, and, and other men as well. So the result of that careful application of contextualization was people were saved. People were saved. And if he had spoken like he did it to the Jews in, in Athens, to the Areopagus, they would have just laughed him off the stage. But no, he was careful with that. He put a lot of effort into that, into reaching the lost in Athens in all those different contexts, the marketplace, the synagogue, and even the Areopagus. So is contextualization only for missionaries, though? Is, it, is, is really only Super Paul the one who has to worry about that and maybe super missionaries that go like that friend of ours in the Muslim world? Um, are they the only ones that need to, need to work hard and... and, and prepare like an Olympic athlete to communicate the gospel to the lost? Well, you know, as I drive from here to Town Lake, um, everyone knows that drive, I would assume, right? <laughs> you know, to get to the, the freeway here or drive on into Town Lake. What do you drive by? You know, I notice this every time I make, make this drive. What, what do we have right across the street from us here? A, a Catholic church, right? Now, what if you were given 10 minutes in a Sunday school, just like this, in a Catholic church, to proclaim the gospel. How would, you, how would you do that? How would you prepare for that? Like an athlete, like an Olympic athlete, like Paul says? To, to in, in essence, get out of the way, get yourself out of the way of the gospel so that people will hear and understand the truth? Um, that would take some, some thinking, some work to, to, to maximize that opportunity. What about you drive down the street a little further? What do you come to? Big black church, right, down there. Now, I've never been in that black church or any black church. You know, I'd love to go one day, but I don't know if they're preaching the truth or not. You know, But 
What if you were given, again, 10, 15 minutes in a Sunday school class there to, to preach the gospel, to give your testimony? How would, you, how would you go about that to win them to Christ if they don't know the Lord? No, I don't know. Maybe they do. I hope they do. Um, what about a little further? You go further down that road. What do you come up to then? The Spanish church. What would you do if you were given 10 minutes there in their Sunday school class? Well, I don't see Paul doing that, quite frankly. <laughs> he, uh, he, when, we, when we see in his arrest, um, in, uh, he goes before, I think it's Festus, and he speaks to him in Greek. You know, Paul didn't get an interpreter. And then he asked to speak to the people, and he speaks in Aramaic. No, he didn't ask for an interpreter. He learned those languages um, to do that. So... What, what, how, would you, how in the world would you reach those people for Christ? Maybe not just in a Sunday school, but in McDonald's or, you know, wherever they're working. They'll probably be working on our church building. They're probably out there now clearing the land, you know, in our church. How are we going to reach them? They probably don't speak, but they understand, you know, go do this and go do that. But when you start asking, you know, what makes your heart tick? You've got to be able to speak their language. Yeah. And then what about you go a little further before you get to the stoplight? What do you go, come up to the right? On the right there, the big amphitheater. What if on one of those Sunday concerts or Saturday concerts, whatever it is that Woodstock has all, all summer long, if you were given 10 minutes to talk about anything you wanted to all those people, thousands of people gathered, how would you prepare for that? Well, you wouldn't say the same thing there as you would the Catholic Church or the Spanish Church or the Black Church. It'd be different. But that takes hard work. Of course you would, yeah. Just like Paul said, according to the Scriptures. Christ died according to the Scriptures. That's what you'd give them. But you would do it in a different way. You would, you, would, you know, there's a canned gospel, you know, approach is not always the right one. It might be right for certain contexts, but not for everyone, you know. There, the people are going to do this if you, if you don't approach them in the right way, just like Paul did at Mars Hill in the Areopagus. Um, but I'll just say those things to challenge us to think, you know, they're, they're, contextualization isn't just for for missionaries and super people. There are opportunities all around us here. Um, but it's hard work to do this and hard work to prepare. It takes effort. It's not easy. And Paul ends this chapter with verse 27. We already read. I'll read it again. But I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, Paul doesn't... You know, you know what he says in, in 2 Timothy, probably the, the last book that he wrote. He's, he's getting done near the end. He doesn't say, you know, I tried to fight. He says, no, I fought the good fight, he says, at the end of his life. He doesn't say, I kind of ran a race. I kind of ran aimlessly, like he talks about here we just read. I kind of boxed in the air, tried to do something. No, he says, I have finished the race. He finished it. I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. So the question is, will, will your reward in heaven go up in smoke when you get to heaven? Or will you be able to stand with Paul and say, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Let's pray.